The remarkable story of U.S. Marine Corps General Smedley Butler is not well known to most Americans, although he was a first-hand witness to one of the most curious episodes in U.S. history. Although General Butler was a soldier's soldier, he was twice awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, his experiences in military engagements around the world led him to conclude that war was a con game led by those who profit from it. In our opinion, his anti-war classic, War is a Racket, should be on your bookshelf. For the full story of General Butler, and the full story is something one should study because, as we say, he was an eyewitness to a truly remarkable incident in presidential politics, there is another book you will want to read. David Talbot has taken the story of Smedley Butler and turned it into his book, Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America. Mr. Talbot's the founder of Salon.com. His previous work, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, was something we were pleased to chat them about a few years ago. Brothers unveiled the fascinating history of the relationship between JFK and brother Robert, and why Bobby Kennedy believed his brother Jack had fallen victim to conspiracy. Mr. Talbot returns to a hidden story of presidential intrigues with Devil Dog. We're keen to discuss it with them, and pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, David Talbot. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. Devil Dog is an unusual book, David. It's extensively illustrated in a sort of a comic style, a graphic art by Spain Rodriguez. And I have to ask, what led you to approach the story of Butler in this, this colorful style? Well, you know, I have uh, uh, sons who are uh, one's 20, one's 17, and they're like all their generation. And hey, to tell you the truth, my generation too, baby boomers, are very visually oriented. And I had written uh, standard history books. I'd written, uh, as you said, Brothers, a story about the Kennedys. And uh, my sons never read that. And I thought, hey, if I present this story in a kind of more colorful way, with, as you say, lots of illustrations and photographs and old maps, and make history come alive that way, maybe I have a shot at getting my sons, my own sons, to read my work. And it seems to have worked. They love it, and uh, I think it does resonate particularly with the young readership, although I have to say I didn't write down. I, I mean, I wrote just the way I write for a general audience, um, no pandering, but the story itself is so action-packed that I think it really pulls readers in. Well, the book starts out with America getting involved in projecting its power across the world at the time of William McKinley. At this time, Smedley Butler was a teenager in the Marine Corps, and your book opens with him in China during the time of what's called the Boxer Rebellion. Can we talk a bit about what was going on there and how U.S. forces, including Butler, got involved? The Boxer Rebellion was a nationalist uprising against the foreigners' uh, control of the Chinese economy, and uh, European powers in particular had an iron grip on China in those years. This is, we're talking about the late 19th century, early 20th century. And finally, there was an uprising of uh, a group known as the Boxers, they were kind of a martial arts group, uh, hence the name. And some people thought they had mystical powers, that they could uh, take a bullet and not be killed. And uh, they got support from some elements within the Chinese royal court and uh, began to target uh, foreigners, missionaries, and others who they felt were exploiting their country and had no right to be in their country. And as a result of this, and uh, at one point the boxers actually laid siege to Peking, as it was called then, the capital, Beijing, uh, where the foreign uh, diplomatic missions were housed. And as a res- uh, in response to this, the full might of uh, imperial nations across the world, particularly Europe and America, 
sent armies and descended on China and to lift the siege around Beijing and to reestablish Western control over China, which they did. Now, Smedley Butler was just a kid at the time, but he was a young lieutenant. He was 18. He joined the Marines at the age of 16. And this kind of imperial mission, as you say, marked the beginning, really, of the rise of the young American empire. And, of course, that was solidified with the Spanish-American War, in which we took control of Cuba and the Philippines. And it was a very controversial war in the United States. And Mark Twain and others led a very impassioned crusade against America's rising role as, a, as, a, as an empire. Smedley Butler was very much, though, a gung-ho part of that as a young soldier, a young Marine, and was very brave, took a couple bullets in China, but lived. And, uh, but then we follow his progress after that, and uh, he begins to evolve. It sounds like he had some doubts about what he witnessed there, with, of course, the Western powers sort of tripping over themselves as to who could grab the most loot. Yeah, it was a looting of China. Uh, there was, you know, mass rapes. There was atrocities. Any time, as we've seen to the present day in Afghanistan and Iraq, when uh, a powerful nation invades another, there's going to be military atrocities. Uh, soldiers are under enormous pressure. Uh, they have uh, a country at its feet, and all too often human nature takes over, and uh, there are terrible abuses of the, of the native populations. And that's exactly what happened in China. Americans engaged in this, but I would say Japan and some of the European powers, including Germany, were even more to blame for some of the terrible things that were done to the Chinese people. Um, but, but, yes, Butler does begin to have some doubts about this as a young soldier, as a young Marine lieutenant. But he really doesn't begin to change his thinking about America's role as a, as a, as a global force uh, in, until some of his later campaigns in, in Latin America. Yeah, well, the book moves from, from China to, to Central America. The U.S. was projecting power into that part of the world, and, and, and Butler was kind of at the center of things and what was going on in Nicaragua. Well, he actually became sort of the face for America's military adventurism throughout Latin America. And as you say, yes, in Nicaragua, putting down uh, nationalist uprisings there, uh, and in uh, Panama and Mexico, and then finally in Haiti. And in fact, he becomes the head of the U.S. occupation, the top policeman, so to speak, uh, in Haiti. And that country, uh, un under U.S. occupation, this is now, we're talking about 1915, uh, when he was in charge of the occupation there, uh, up till World War I, uh, and there were, again, terrible atrocities. There were uh, villages uh, pillaged and destroyed, just like we saw later in Vietnam. People pressed into uh, forced labor camps and so on. The atrocities in Haiti actually became the subject of a very harrowing uh, Senate investigation in the 1920s where Butler was forced to testify. He himself was not uh, as responsible for some of the worst atrocities that uh, U.S. soldiers committed as some other uh, military officials, but he certainly had blood on his hands. And again, this is part of Butler's evolution, because you start to see letters that he's writing home to his father, who was actually a powerful Republican congressman, and to other family members, and starting to say things like, you know, why are my soldiers fighting and dying for Wall Street banks? Because that's why we're really here in Haiti. We're uh, taking over the economy here for, for Wall Street. 
And he said the same thing about U.S. involvement in Nicaragua, where he actually was in charge of the fraudulent elections there um, that the Marines presided over. So he's seeing the ugly side of empire more and more. In fact, he's the main guy who's seeing this because he's in charge of enforcing that empire. And Smedley Butler does have a soul. He has his conscience. This is not why he signed up to uh, fight for his country. And he begins to have, I think, a very interesting uh, transformation. Well, he uh, was denied the access to, to, to combat troops in Europe when we got involved in World War I. Uh, I guess they decided by this point he was a talented organizer and the troops loved him for standing, uh, standing with them. And, and I, I gather from your book he, he distinguished himself by saving a lot of lives there by building some proper facilities for men that were sent over there. Yes, actually, most of the casualties that America suffered in that war were, of course, to disease and uh, other non-combat-related uh, uh, suffering. It, particularly in the beginning uh, of that uh, of our involvement in World War One, when our soldiers uh, actually uh, were going over uh, the Atlantic, and and many of them were stricken with the flu. There, of course, was a terrible international flu epidemic at the time. And so, in fact, the transport ship that Butler himself was on with the uh, 13th Marine Regiment, the Hoodoo Regiment, as it was called, it was terribly hit by illness on the way over, and he himself fell ill, and many of the soldiers died on their way over. So when they arrived in France on the soggy, foggy coast of, of Brittany, it was a miserable sight that he beheld. It was... Uh, a camp that had been built for uh, 1,200 people now has 60,000, some 60,000 soldiers. They were in the mud. They were sick and suffering. And Smedley Butler threw himself into uh, making things right for his boys, the doughboys, with all his might. And he, he expropriated from military warehouses uh, what was called duckboard, the wooden slats, uh, that they lined the bottom of trenches with, so the soldiers would be literally up out of the mud. He built housing for them. He brought in medical facilities, even an ice cream factory and entertainment. And he turned around the rates of uh, disease and death uh, in the camps that it really was uh, laying waste to the American soldiers in Europe. And uh, he was given, you know, a medal and great honors for this. But he, he was frustrated. He never got to go to the front himself and see action himself because he was a real gung-ho character. But he was in a, a very unique position to see what the war was doing to these young men as they came back from the front lines on the Western Front. And they were flowing back through his camp, back to America, and the shell shock and the horrible disfiguring uh, and the terrible wounds of these men and later, he went back in the United States, made it a point, even though this wasn't his official responsibility, to visit veterans' hospitals all around the country to see how these poor casualties of World War I were being treated. And they were being treated horribly, he said, like animals. And from that point on, I think Butler has an amazing epiphany and decides that most of the wars he's been, in, he's been in have not been for Uncle Sam or for his country, but for, as he put it, Standard Oil Company and Wall Street. And these young men are, were chewed up by these wars and then thrown away by the country, and he is appalled at this. And so he devotes the rest of his life to crusading for, for veterans' rights and for peace. 
We're speaking with author David Talbot about his book, Devil Dog, The Amazing True Story of the Man Who Saved America. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this particular aspect, but there was a little, I guess, almost comedic aside in, in the book, David. You talked about how in the 20s, uh, Butler got involved in the enforcement of prohibition. His hometown uh, put him in charge, and uh, as Butler usually did, he didn't do things the way that uh, the, the powerful interest would have preferred. No, he, he always had a way of stepping on the, the toes of the rich and powerful. Yes, in desperation, the city of Philadelphia turns to Butler and says, uh, you know, we're being overrun by gangland violence. It's the Prohibition era. The Al Capone types have taken over cities. Uh, and so Smedley says, yes, he will. He'll take a leave uh, of absence from the Marines, and he becomes the top uh, police official in Philadelphia in the 1920s. And he begins to go after sort of the corner speakeasies and the sort of the street bootleggers. But then he realizes, you know, this isn't the real problem in this town. The real problem uh, are the big guys, once again. These are the people who are connected to the Republican Party and connected to the downtown banks where all this illegal money is being laundered. And, you know, he, f- he realizes that the establishment itself, the political and financial establishment in Philadelphia, have a major stake in the, uh, you know, the black market and booze. And so he begins going after the big guys, and he starts raiding their private parties where they have booze uh, <laughs> illegally. He's, he, 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 he sends his, sol- his soldiers, because they were kind of like his soldiers, he sends his cops you know, rushing into the Ritz-Carlton Hotel <laughs> and, and, and arrest these guys in their tuxedos and the women in their mink stoles. So he began to, you know, his days were numbered at that point. The big guys didn't want this kind of aggressive policing. And uh, Smelly Butler saw, actually, prohibition and the crackdown on illegal booze as a class war, he called it, because the little guys, on their way home from work, the factory, you know, stopping to get an illegal beer, were being rounded up, while the big guys, once again, went scot-free. So once he had offended these, uh, the wealthy and powerful in Philadelphia, his days were numbered, and they quickly forced him out of office. Butler was obviously not one to be politically correct and, and certainly spoke his mind out. In 1931, I note, the first senior military officer since the Civil War to be placed under arrest. Political intrigues again are involved with that. What, what happened there? Well, it's interesting. Uh, people you know, were beginning to accuse some people of, of Butler of pacifism. And because he, did, he, was such a, uh, he had become such a vocal critic of war and, and of America's overseas involvement, uh, and yet, in a speech that he gave in Philadelphia in that year, and that's is near the end of Herbert Hoover's administration, he said no, he didn't believe in demilitarizing the country or demobilizing because he knew America needed a strong military. And he used as an example of the international threats that America faced, Mussolini in Italy, who was then rising to power. And despite uh, being, uh, of course, an open fascist uh, and a future ally of Hitler's, uh, Mussolini had a lot of friends in high places in this country, including Henry Luce, the, the media baron, the Rupert Murdoch of his day, who owned Time magazine and Life magazine. And he put Mussolini on, Mussolini on the cover of Time magazine, in fact, as the face of the future, because he thought what he was doing in Italy was so modern and bold. Um, in any case, uh, Butler in the speech says Mussolini's a mad dog, and he uses as an example 
a terrible incident that had been told to him by uh, an American newsman named Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was from, the, of course, the wealthy Vanderbilt family. And Vanderbilt had been uh, crisscrossing Europe and meeting with foreign heads of state, including Mussolini. And at one point, Mussolini invited Vanderbilt to join him on a cross-country tour of Italy uh, in his specially made uh, road car, and, uh, in which he roared through the countryside at high speeds. Well, as Mussolini was driving through a little Italian village with Vanderbilt by his side, he hit, he struck a, a small child, a, a girl, ran her over, uh, and killed her. And uh, Vanderbilt screamed and turned around in the car to look back at what they'd done. And Mussolini put his hand on his knee and said, never look back in life, Mr. Vanderbilt. Smedley tells this story to a Philadelphia audience. It becomes an international incident. Uh, the Italian government and Mussolini are in an uproar, and they put pressure on our government, Herbert Hoover, and our Secretary of State, to reprimand uh, Butler. They go so far, and this is now a military hero, one of uh, you know the most decorated men of his day, winner of two Congressional Medals of Honor. But Hoover puts him under house arrest on the Marine base at Quantico, which he was in charge of. A, a terrible humiliation for Butler. And, uh, you know, his career is uh, facing ruin at that point. But a, uh, a man named Franklin Roosevelt, then governor of, of New York, stepped in, offered his help. Uh, the country rallies around Butler. Newsreels uh, in movie theaters reporting on this incident inevitably have audiences booing Hoover, President Hoover, and uh, cheering Butler. Finally, uh, Hoover had to back down and... Uh, and Butler resumed his career as a Marine. But uh, this was another turning point for Butler, and he you know, realizes at that point, and because of the way that Hoover has been treating veterans, which we can talk about, the Bonus Army March, that he's going to now go against his family um, uh, you know, record of many years and leave the Republican Party and become a Democrat and campaign for Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, let's talk about that. In 1932, uh, there was an election year. I mean, it was between Governor Roosevelt and President Hoover. Um, in, in that year, a bonus army of World War I vets seeking compensation for wages they lost in the war descended on Washington and got dealt with very harshly by Hoover. And uh, troops led by Douglas MacArthur rousted them, which, which outraged Butler and I guess really put him firmly in the Roosevelt camp. That's right. Well, Butler had actually spoken to uh, the... Uh, the veterans who were camped out in Washington demanding their, their bonus. And uh, he rallied them and told them to remain peaceful, but that the country was behind them. And he said they have every right, as much right as uh, U.S. Steel and Standard Oil to lobby uh, the government. And, uh, but then, as you say, President Hoover decided to unleash the full might of uh, the Army on these uh, defenseless soldiers or veterans and their families. There were women and children in these camps as well. And MacArthur, strutting in his full uniform and jodhpurs, uh, led tanks and cavalry and soldiers with bayonets into these camps where they set fire to them and drove uh, the veterans and their families out. FDR, the next day, looking at the newspaper headlines, said, you know, General MacArthur's just caught cost Hoover, the election. Butler was not alone in defecting at that point, and uh, he did campaign aggressively for Franklin Roosevelt and uh, helped rally the veterans' vote for Roosevelt. 
Well, David, we, we've spent a lot of time on Butler's history, which is the most interesting one, and, and, and I think that all of this sets up your final chapter in the book, which tells the, the, the really, I think, earth-shaking part about, well, it's titled The Plot Against America. To talk about what unfolded starting in July of 33 as Butler got approached with some people making overtures that he found suspicious. Well, this is. It's a remarkable chapter in American history, and it's, to me, it's just completely perplexing, again, why these kind of particularly dark and, and fascinating chapters get suppressed. It's in no standard history books. It, 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 you know, at the best, it amounts to a footnote in biographies of Franklin Roosevelt. But there was, indeed, a very aggressive secret plot against the Roosevelt administration very early on in his presidency, starting in 1933, after he was inaugurated. There were powerful forces on Wall Street centered around the Morgan interest, J.P. Morgan, which was the most powerful banking institution on Wall Street in those days. And these are people, very powerful bankers, industrialists, who decided that Roosevelt was going too far to the left, that he was uh, raiding the federal treasury uh, to put people back to work uh, and to uh, help people who were poor and, and in desperate need. And they felt that he was imperiling the value of the dollar by doing this and their own uh, fortunes. And so a number of these people, uh, in and around the Liberty League, by the way, which was a very powerful corporate lobbying group at the day of its day that, you know, the Tea Party pales in comparison, uh, or the Chamber of Commerce today. And... uh, they actually began to conspire uh, to overthrow Roosevelt. They claimed they wanted to do it peacefully, but they were inspired by some of the fascist putches and uprisings uh, in, in Europe. Um, and they had in mind arming veterans and marching them on Washington in a show of force that would compel FDR to give up his office. They turned to, they considered MacArthur uh, for the role of leading this uh, fascist army. But they decided that uh, because of his role in the Bonus Army, the rank and file wouldn't follow him, which was probably correct. They knew how popular, though, Butler was with the rank and file soldiers, and so they turned to him, even though they knew he was uh, a little less predictable, and they began to talk to him about leading an army of armed 500,000 veterans into Washington to force President Roosevelt to step down. Uh, Butler leads them on. He hears, he hears them out. He meets with their representatives of this plot several times. Uh, and finally, instead of going along with the plot, and by the way, he's promised great riches and power in the process, but Smedley Butler shows his true heroism, and this, is, I think, is the most heroic act of a very heroic life. And instead of going along with this plot and to end American democracy, he exposes the plot in very dramatic closed testimony before Congress and helps expose the plotters and ends the plot. Uh, FDR deals with them in his usual very discreet way. Frank uh, Douglas MacArthur, um, for instance, is not reappointed as Army Chief of Staff, the most powerful military position in the country. But he's, in fact, sent overseas like, a, like the disloyal Roman general in the old days. And uh, he never comes back to the United States. He's in Asia the rest of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt's life. Um, and so he, Roosevelt dealt with it in his own discreet way, and that's partly why it didn't become public and, and a famous incident. 
but uh, Butler's heroism is unsung, but people should know about it because, you know, American democracy, like all democracies, are fragile things, and you know, our own democracy has suffered many blows in its, its, its day. And this was probably one of the greatest threats because, of course, there was a strong fascist movement, not just in Europe at the time, but within the United States as well, that had strong corporate supporters. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency might have ended virtually as it was just beginning if it hadn't been for Butler. David, I have to note at this point, a lot of people listening are going to be going, I never heard of this plot, and they're going to go to Wikipedia and other sources on the web. And and I would note that when you do that, um, it's sort of very wishy-washy about the seriousness of of this plot. Well, what do you, what do you say to those who would would scoff at the seriousness of the conspiracy we're talking about? Well, just like there are professional conspiracy theorists who tend to see conspiracy behind every bush, there's professional conspiracy deniers too, <laughs> who for either political reasons or whatever their own motives are, who deny you know everything. Uh, in every dark allegation about power. Um, and, you know, power does function sometimes in secret and in darkness and not for the good of the people as a whole. That's just a fact of life. Europeans understand this. Americans tend to be more naive, I think, about their own government. Um, so I would say look at the facts. And we marsh- I marshal those facts in the book. But if they really want to go to the source of it, there is a transcript of the congressional hearings that it can be found. Um, they're in the government archives, but they also have been reproduced online. I quote from them in the book. These were hearings were held uh, by John McCormick, who later became Speaker of the House, a very illustrious figure in American politics. In fact, John McCormick from Massachusetts, uh, who was in charge of these hearings, late in, late in his life, after he was retired from a very... Uh, a very illustrious career as a congressman, uh, gave an interview to a Boston newspaper and said, there's an unsung Marine hero we should all know about, and that's, uh, that's Medley Darlington Butler. And because of him, we have democracy in this country today. So don't take my word for it. Look at the congressional testimony. Look at what John McCormick said. And, uh, and, and other brave reporters of the day, because while the mainstream press tended to poo-poo the plot, like Time Magazine, for obvious reasons, again, Henry Luce. Um, There were some enterprising reporters on the left and also for Jewish uh, newspapers and publications who who took the threat of fascism very seriously for for obvious reasons. Well, we would note that Congress, as you say, did investigate the the plot, but Butler himself kind of was demanding to call call the higher-ups, call call the guys that uh, these these intermediaries that came to speak with me were representing, and I guess Congress... uh, did step away from that. That's true. The uh, the hearing, the investigation pulled its punches. It stopped short of, of calling for MacArthur's testimony or, or Morgan's testimony or DuPont, the DuPont family or other villains in this whole episode. Uh, and, and he was outraged by that. Butler, in fact, just like a Capra movie, went on the air. There was a small radio station where he had a radio show near his hometown in, in Pennsylvania. And it was stepped by CBS nationwide, and he um, he tried to alert the American people in saying, demand that Congress release the full testimony, demand that real culprits here be be called to uh, account for what they did. Um, he was frustrated in that regard, 
the plot was never thoroughly and fully investigated, and the people were not public, uh, publicly punished the way that they should have been. As I said, FDR, I think because the country was so unstable at the time, in the depths of the Depression and, and so politically volatile, he decided not to turn this into a public spectacle, and he dealt with the culprits in his own private way. But, um, but Butler did want a public accounting. I think democracy would have been even stronger if, if we had done it publicly like that. Well, David, final question. Uh, I've got your book here in front of me, and, and right next to it I do have War is a Racket by uh, General Smedley Butler. It's, it's quite a hard-hitting essay. It's not a long piece, but quite, quite hard-hitting in what, what, there's, what there is. Do you think he would have written this book in 1935 uh, if there hadn't been this plot? That perhaps was part of the motivation, realizing the powerful corporate interests that, uh, that threatened democracy in, uh, at times. But I think he, he was so emotional about this issue, and anyway, and about what young men who are asked to fight and die for a country are put through, that I think he would have done it anyway. That was from his heart. That was a cry from his heart, that book, War is a Racket. And by the way, I have to say, we need another Smedley Butler today, because war is still a racket in this country. And there's a few brave uh, military officers who have spoken out about the ways that our military has been stretched so thin and the kind of sacrifices that military families have had to make for wars that are inexplicable often. And certainly they're, they're no less inexplicable today than they were in Smedley Butler's day. Why are we fighting? That's what Butler asked, and that's what every American has to ask. Why are we fighting? Who profits from it? And who sacrifices? And what kind of a country do we want to live in that's permanently at war like this? These are questions that Butler asked, and the Americans don't ask enough, I think, anymore. Uh, And so I think Butler's story is inspirational in that way. Well, we talked about the top of this program. The war in Afghanistan is now nine years, eight months, 23 days as we go to air. And there's talk about extending it to the end of 2014. So I, I have to say that to the, the points you're bringing up certainly are, uh, are important. Thanks, Doug. And, I, I, you know, particularly for young people, too. And, again, that's bringing it full circle here. Why I particularly want people who are going to be joining the military or called on to fight for their country or to pay taxes and, and to see their brothers and sisters fight and die. You have to, you know, think through the uh, consequences of that as an American citizen, and, and hopefully this book can, can help provoke that kind of discussion. We've been speaking with author David Talbot about his fascinating book, Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America. David, thank you for speaking with us, and I hope we'll, uh, hope we'll bring you back sometime soon. I appreciate it, Doug. Thank you.